Let's pray. Father, we praise the one who has reached for us today. We praise you. Praise the one who died so we could be forgiven. In merciful pursuit, you chased us down. We thank you and we glorify you this morning. As we look at your word now, would you speak to us by the power of your spirit? And may we forever be changed by what we hear from you today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. pretty common to see the cross as one of the most shockingly vile events to ever take place. Not just because of the torture, pain, or death. There have been worse incidences of those. But because the one who suffered was so perfectly innocent and undeserving. Think, it's It's the only one in history purer than even a newborn baby dying in a horrific criminal's execution appears appallingly unjust, evil. It's appropriate, I think, when the cross unsettles us or makes us uncomfortable. It was horrible. But when we think on it, I think there's something in particular that can bother us because we believe that God is sovereign and in control over all happenings on earth, which means that this nightmarish Friday was part of God's plan. But how could that be? How could it be God's plan to have his beloved son experience the worst injustice, humiliation, pain, and death? I mean, it might even raise questions in your minds about the nature or character of God. How could he allow this? We might prefer to to see the cross as a mistake or a miscalculation in God's plans. Or something purely bad that Satan or bad people planned that God nevertheless then redeemed. And yet, the Bible is clear that God didn't just endure or redeem the cross, and it didn't catch him off guard. He did, in fact, plan it himself from all eternity past. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all intimately involved in this plan to have Christ march up, beaten and bloodied, to be torturously killed on a cross. How? Why? As we sing in one of our hymns, And when I think that God, his Son not sparing, sent him to die, Scarce can take it in. Many people even decide they just can't take it in. It's too much. And they even reject God for it. 
But today, I want us to try to take it in. I want us to to ponder the cross in its brutality and in its beauty. I want us to, to wrestle with the tension that God planned, caused, and redeemed the cross. An event that seems so vile on the outside, yet was so victorious in the end. So to do this, I invite you to open up a Bible with me to Isaiah 52 and 53. If you don't have a Bible of your own, they're in the seat uh, bottoms in front of you. So Isaiah 52 and 53, and the page number's on the screen. This is one of the most well-known ancient biblical prophecies of all time, which Christians recognize as speaking about Jesus Christ and his experience on earth. This prophecy was written around 700 years before Christ was born, and yet it predicted many things about his life and his suffering in detail. And this comes in the midst of a series of passages in Isaiah that talk about someone called the servant of the Lord, whose identity was a mystery in Isaiah's day. But the New Testament repeatedly identifies this servant as Jesus. Now, I'm going to read through it all first, but as I read through these possibly familiar words, I want you to read them in a unique way. Right? There are three main actors in this passage. God the Father, His servant, and people, or humanity. All right, so I want you to take note of the various actions of each of these parties. In other words, what do people do in this passage? Right? What are they responsible for? And what does the suffering servant or Jesus do? And what does God the Father do? Okay? You can watch for those things as we go. So let's proceed. Starting in verse 13 of chapter 52, it says this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, or another interpretation of that is the, the servant shall prosper. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. 
and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, this is God speaking, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, as we began there, this passage seems to start out pretty upbeat. Right in the final verses of chapter 52, it says, Behold, my servant shall prosper, he shall be high and lifted up, he shall be exalted. At some point it says that the servant's appearance is going to be marred. That doesn't sound good. But that will be reversed, and he will be exalted. And it will amaze people, even kings of the earth. But then chapter 53 takes a dark turn, especially around verse 3 as we begin to see the servant's misery in the meantime. Now, as you tracked different people's actions in this passage, did you notice our actions, mankind's actions in these verses? It's not a flattering picture. Right? In verse 3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as from one whom men hide their faces, he was despised, we esteemed him not. Surely has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Verse 7, he was oppressed. He was afflicted. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression by people. He made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Like by my count here, we, despised, rejected, grieved, hid from, esteemed not, or that means held in contempt, afflicted, pierced, crushed, wounded, oppressed, judged, killed, cut off, and unceremoniously buried this servant of the Lord. (laughs) That's what we did to Jesus. And verse 6 tells us more generally that 
We've all gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We were bad news. Just by going astray after our own ways, abandoning the ways of God, not to mention killing his son, we would all deserve God's wrath and not God's love. And yet we see God's love come through clearly here because he did all of this for us in spite of our evil. And this gives us a first clear reason, I think, why the cross was God's plan all along. See, God's plan in the cross was to powerfully pursue us who had gone astray. God's plan in the cross was to powerfully pursue us who had gone astray. As a human race, we went astray. We even abused, afflicted Jesus. But did you notice here how saving us was God's plan. It was all part of God's plan. In verse 1, it frames the whole story under this heading, if you will. It says, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, God, as a spirit, doesn't have arms like we do. This is a metaphor. But have you ever heard the phrase, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm in Scripture? It's used a lot. Right? And this saying was used to describe God's power and God's activity in ways that we could comprehend. As if God really had a, a strong arm that he outstretches from heaven to rescue us and to help us. Say if I reach down to my toddler to pick him up from his prison of a playpen. <laughs> he could say that I had a mighty hand and an outstretched arm for his help. Now, the arm of the Lord shows us that God was active and that he was powerful. So Isaiah is saying that Jesus, when he came, revealed the Lord's arm to people. God was actively involved in everything. He wasn't absent. He wasn't aloof in Jesus' life. And he's powerfully working in and through his servant here. In verse 2, it talks about how Jesus grew up as a man on earth. It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Now, you may have started to see, at least before the ice storm, a few young plants just start to pop out from below the soil. Maybe. But when you, when you see that, besides being just a delightful green... They don't bear their natural beauty yet because their flowers or their fruit haven't nearly bloomed or blossomed. Jesus is like that. His natural beauty was hidden while he was on earth. It was only partly revealed. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. But for our, our purposes today, notice just a small part of the first line where it says he grew up before him. Before who? Well, the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus grew up and lived his life under the watchful eye and care of his Father. Like God didn't send him to earth, wish him good luck, and then leave him alone. He was present and active throughout Jesus' life, growing him, guiding him. And then came our part. 
our sinful rejection of him. Like we talked about, he was despised, rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, we esteemed him not. Now those were more or less true during his life, but those were most fulfilled at his death. Then verse 4, surely he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Before we can see the unbelievable good that came about on Good Friday, we have to glimpse some of the bad that led Jesus to the cross. As for God's part in all this, we see in verse 4 that Jesus was smitten by God. Now, smitten has come to mean being struck with love or attraction for someone. That's not what this is saying here. This is the original meaning of the word, like it's used here, is simply the past tense of smite. So, this is saying something rather shocking. That God smote Jesus for some reason. Verse 5 says similar, that Jesus was chastised or punished. God would have been doing the one, or the one doing the chastising. So what's going on here? Well, we'll get to why Jesus would have been smitten or chastised in a bit. For now, I just want you to, to notice how heartbreaking Jesus' experience was. Rejected by man and smitten by God. And then, verses 6 to 7 get to the heart of why God's plan involved the cross. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So here we're given multiple pictures of sheep. First, we're likened to sheep, and then Jesus is. How are we like sheep? Well, we're stupid like sheep. We wander off from our shepherd. We start munching on some grass, and then get so caught up in chowing down that we don't even realize we've followed juicy patches of grass all over the countryside over a hill, around a corner, down a ravine. And when we look up, finally, we are hopelessly lost. That's an apt description of the human race, all the way back to the beginning with the fall. Ever since, we gave in to the devil's temptation and decided we know best, we've gone astray. And it's not just our ancient ancestors who've done this. We all have. It says, we all, we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And in turning to our own ways, we rejected God and his ways. Now, if that doesn't sound that bad to you, this describes our first and foremost problem in our existence. 
of our self-independence and self-idolatry, which has turned us into enemies of God. We've effectively tried to displace God from his rightful place in the universe and in our lives and replace him with ourselves. D.A. Carson says that even when we are doing good, it is so habitually done independently of God because we are determined to be our own gods. We are at the center of the universe. This is the very heart of all idolatry. All the bad stuff that sluices down through the corridors of history emerges finally through that vaunted, awful self-independence. The fundamental problem is the universal idolatry of humans. We de-God God. But, you say, I don't go around claiming to be the center of the universe. Carson actually challenges on that by pointing out just two hypothetical scenarios, and there could be many, many of these. It says, first, if I held up a picture, a, a picture of a big group of you and your friends, maybe a, a photo from a graduation or a camp or something, and you hold that up to you, whose face do you automatically look for first? Just to make sure it's there. <laughs> or... Say you have a humdinger of an argument with someone. Huge fight. You're like a, he says, a knockdown, drag him out, one in ten years argument. And you're just seething. Right? And you're mentally replaying it. Think of all the things you could have or should have said. When you replay the argument in your mind, who wins? Carson says, I've lost a lot of arguments in my time, but I've never lost a mental rerun. <laughs> and so he concludes, if I think that I'm at the center of the universe, then most likely you do too. And frankly, you stupid twit, how dare you set yourself up over against me? And now, instead of God being at the center, each human being each of God's own image bearers thinks he or she is at the center. We find our self-identity not in being God's creature, but in any other person, institution, value system, ritual, anything, so that God cannot be allowed to make his ultimate claim as our creator and judge. God, we say, if he or she or it exists, jolly well better serve me. Or else, quite frankly, I'll find another God. That's the beginning of idolatry. It's our biggest problem. And this is one of the key reasons that God's plan meant the cross. Because he didn't want us stuck in our own self-idolatry, straying off, lost to our own ways. So he, in love, pursued us. Like a shepherd, seeking after his lost sheep. And he powerfully pursued us, stretching out his arm, or you could say his arms, to rescue us. And the truly shocking part, even though we never deserved it and should never demand it, he did, in fact, serve us. He sent his son as a servant. 
in order to love us anyway. The Son of Man, Jesus says, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Christ even became like a sheep for us, though in a different way than us. He was not a sheep in stupidity, but in sacrifice. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So you can say, like a shepherd, he pursues us, and like a sheep, he sacrificed himself to do so. All throughout history, while we went astray, God had been pointing to the need for a sacrifice over and over again. Either we would have to pay for our sin and our iniquity ourselves, or we would need a substitute, a sacrifice that would pay for us. In his people's worship, he established that innocent lambs were often slain in place of his people. And at the cross... Jesus, the Lamb of God, sacrificed his his own life in our place. And this gets at a second way that the cross was indeed God's plan. God's plan in the cross was to personally bear the punishment of our guilt. God's plan in the cross was to personally bear the, the punishment of our guilt. This is why Isaiah says that Jesus was smitten and chastised, why verse 8 says that he was stricken for the transgression of my people, as well as why verse 5 can say the chastisement that he bore could bring us peace. Like without the cross, we would have no peace with God because we'd still be his enemies, we'd still be lost, we'd still be guilty. As you watched, as we read this passage, as you watched for the actions of God, I'm sure you noticed verse 6, where it says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like a, a sacrificial lamb or like a scapegoat, God laid our sins on Jesus. He transferred them from us to him. Now, that may sound bad at first, like we were talking about, but this is the good news for Good, uh, for good Friday for us. Because God laid his sins on Jesus, our sins can now be forgiven. Had there been another way to save sinners and to satisfy his justice, God surely would have taken it. But he'd been clear all along. Blood had to be shed. Either our own or a substitutes. The wages of sin is death. And so God, in his wisdom and his love, made a just way to pay for our guilt. He, in the person of his son, would bear it himself. God, in essence, would bleed and die. You might not sense your need for this right away, thinking, I don't feel super guilty. Yet I beg to differ even if we've suppressed this feeling, I look around and I see a world that is awash in guilt. Kevin DeYoung recently pointed this out in detail. He said, just think 
of how many books or memes or posts or status updates are to the effect, you're awesome. Stop being so hard on yourself. Because there's a sense we all have that we're not doing enough and that we're not good enough. He says, that's only become a much stronger sense in a hyper-connected world where we are instantly aware of almost every tragedy or disaster or sadness anywhere in the world. We feel culpable and responsible, and we think that there's always something more that we need to do, that we should do, that we can do. Always something more. There's also this tendency that we have to try to prove our innocence in relation to other people around us. It's like the only way that our world offers us to deal with our guilt and recover a sense of innocence is to prove that you're guilty and I'm not. See, all over the place. And DeYoung continues... Various worldly theories are built upon the idea that you are in one category or the other, or one category or the other, a sinner or a sufferer, an oppressor or the oppressed, because the world doesn't know what to do with the guilt except to make other people guilty so that we can plead our innocence. We are a culture drowning in statements of universal corruption and moral culpability. We are a people loaded with guilt. Do you feel that? In some, like we are constantly being told how bad we are without being told what we can do about it. We can't escape guilt today. And we need a solution to deal with our guilt. Enter God's plan. Like I hope Isaiah 53 does convict you of how lost and self-centered we are on our own. And you think, why did God plan something as seemingly horrific as the cross? Because of you. Because of me. We should feel guilty and feel even worse that our sin caused Jesus to die. We can't stay there. We also have to ask, why would God himself go through with this excruciating plan? Also because of you. We should feel loved beyond our wildest dreams that he would do this for us. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? Like it's more vital than you've ever thought. Have you confessed him as Lord? Received him as your personal savior? Because you can today. Like he personally bore your griefs, sorrows, guilt, and sin to the cross. And he dealt with your guilt. Even though... He had none of his own. Like verse 9 said, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. So good news on this Good Friday. Your guilt can be gone 
you can be forever freed from it today. Something may still not sit right with you. If this was all God's plan, wouldn't that imply that God the Father cruelly inflicted this onto his son? I mean, look at what verse 10 says. It very clearly says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So this was no unjust accident. Other translations say, it was the Lord's good plan, or his desire even, to crush Jesus. How could this be God's will, plan, or desire? Like, how could God will to crush or grieve his own son? You may hear some claim that this constitutes cosmic child abuse. A vengeful father punishing his sons for sins that he never committed. Here's the, the major, major problem with this idea. It artificially separates the Godhead, or the Trinity, as if they had different goals, plans, and desires from each other's. It's like saying that either Christ had to intervene in this problem to, to pacify an angry or begrudging father, or the father had to intervene by unjustly punishing an innocent son. And John Stott says, in both cases, God and Christ are sundered from one another. Either Christ persuades God or God punishes Christ. Both presentations denigrate the Father, really. Reluctant to suffer himself, he victimizes Christ instead. Reluctant to forgive, he is prevailed on by Christ to do so. He is seen as the pitiless ogre whose wrath has to be assuaged by the loving self-sacrifice of Jesus. But, the Father did not lay on the Son an ordeal he was reluctant to bear, nor did the Son extract from the Father a salvation he was reluctant to bestow. There was no unwillingness in either. On the contrary, their wills coincided in the perfect self-sacrifice of love. Here, here's the core truth here. That the Father's purposes were the exact same as the Son's purposes. God the Father wanted to save sinners this passionately, and so did Jesus. They both wanted it. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, and the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. The cross is, is just as much a testament as the, to the Father's love as it is to Jesus' love. Like the Father willing the Son to be crushed does not express cruelty, but instead, unfathomable love for us. God doesn't just beat up on his kid here. God demonstrates his love in that Christ died for us. God's not against us while Christ is for us like they're at odds. God is for us. 
You get that? Like the details may be mysterious to us, but this was God's plan, the whole triune God's plan. To put it another way, Jesus, God the Son, readily and eagerly volunteered for this mission. Yes, the Bible says the Father sent the Son to the cross, but we have no right to then assume that Jesus was an unwilling victim. Or to say that God coerced or compelled Jesus to do anything. No, Jesus freely played his part. He was not forced. He wanted to do this. And yes, he prayed three times in Gethsemane. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. But Jesus was the one who still stood back up and went to the cross, taking up the cup, and never once abandoning his mission of mercy. He knew that it was not possible to save sinners any other way, so he aligned his own will with his Father's will one more time, and he went fully willing, like a lamb led to the slaughter. So yes, the Father gave his one and only Son, and Christ gave himself up for us. So yes, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and it was the will of the Lord to be crushed. Just focus on the actions, as we read, that are attributed to Jesus here in Isaiah 53. Verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 7 says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. So he opened not his mouth. Verse 10 says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And he did all of that willingly, gladly even. He made the necessary offering for guilt. So then we can sing. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing. He bled and died to take away my sin. Hold up, you may say. Are you saying God was to blame for Jesus' death so that all of the injustice, torture, and killing should be attributed to him and not to wicked people? Not at all. Not to get too deep on you, but there is more than one will at work at all times. We can both. They can both be true. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. If sinful people were still to blame for Christ's death, like Peter preached in Acts 3, you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. So, did, who put Jesus on the cross then? Did God, Jesus, the Jewish leaders, or Pilate, or the devil, sinful humanity in general, maybe we put him on the cross with our sin? The answer is all of the above. Right? 
But ultimately, above and beyond the evil that clearly took place on that day were God's holy actions and plan. And frankly, I'd have it no other way. Because we're, like, if God was not sovereignly at work in the cross, he would not be truly almighty. And we wouldn't be able to trust him in the midst of our own trials today. But he was. Next time you're tempted to doubt that God could be good in the midst of your pain, I encourage you to look at the cross. God was so good, even in the midst of that pain. And right as his goodness was being revealed, so was his power. Like through that humanly evil event, God was sovereignly addressing the sources of all that evil. He was dealing with it. He was, he was solving our greatest problems. He was saving our fallen race. And if Jesus could trust his Father when even the cross came his way, we can trust God's heart when anything comes our way. Because we, we can see that his heart for us is a heart of love and compassion. There's one more major issue with the idea that God cruelly inflicted Jesus with the cross. And that's that crushing Christ was not the final end goal. It was only the means to it. And the end goal wasn't just salvation of sinners while Jesus is suffering over here. No, the, the greater end goal was the glorious exaltation and eternal honor of the Son. Now, don't miss this, okay? God was accomplishing something wonderful for us through Jesus' death. But God was also accomplishing something wonderful for Jesus through it all. Look again at verse 10. And not just how it starts, but how it ends. He said, the will was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, but it ends. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So it was God's will to crush him. It was also God's will to prosper him. Starts tragically, ends triumphantly. And it continues on this way. Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. And don't miss the why. Okay, why would Jesus prosper? Why would he be satisfied? Why would he be given the, the victor's portion of the spoils of war like a champion? Because, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. See, it was, it was, through, the, it was through the cross that Jesus was exalted greater than ever. Here's the point. God's plan in the cross was to prosper and exalt his son all along. God's plan in the cross was to prosper and exalt his son all along. Think of Philippians 2, where it says of Jesus, and being found in human form, 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's no coincidence that the very next word is therefore. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' death led to even greater glory for him. And it's the same logic here in Isaiah 53. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The message, and then the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The message paraphrases that as God's plan will deeply prosper through him. And then verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the many. A good Friday was not the end of the story. Otherwise, it really wouldn't have been good at all. Isaiah even hints at the resurrection here. Since he talks about Jesus pouring out his soul to death, yet also saying after he makes an offering for guilt, Jesus would see his offspring, his days would be prolonged. This is life after death, and a glorious life at that. Today, I just want to ask, are, are you one of his offspring that he's seen? One of his children by faith? If so, give glory to God. It's not that you were so awesome that he wanted to save you. On the contrary. But it does show you just how loved you are that he deemed you worth dying for. And he rejoices over us. Having borne our iniquities, he makes many of us righteous. So despite your sin and guilt, have you been made righteous? If so, give glory to God. We're his portion, his prize. We're, we're part of Jesus' spoils of war, so to speak. And he actively cares for us and prays for us even now, like it finishes, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And that's really great news. I don't have a lot of time to go into, but Hebrews 7.25 puts it, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And this was not all just some accidental result of Jesus' death that God stumbled into. Let me emphasize again, this was the plan all along. Remember how we started in Isaiah, not in chapter 53, but in 52. It says, Behold, my servant shall prosper. He shall, he shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Many times in life, we can't or shouldn't say that the ends justify the means. But in this specific case, the ends 
were part of the deepest purpose of the universe. And in God's infinite wisdom, the means were very justified. Christ deserves all the glory. So he shall be exalted. In our lives, we might often complain about God's plan when we see just a sliver of it. And this is the case with the cross if we look at it in isolation from everything else. It can be hard to see how all the brutality was part of God's plan. But when we back up and we get a glimpse of the whole picture, the beauty comes into focus. And I promise you that if you are God's child, this will happen with every single circumstance in your life, both good and bad. In the end, we will see how God uses it for our good and for the eternal glory of his Son. But for now, as we look at the cross, we can agree we're to blame for so much evil. We must also realize we are so so unfathomably loved as well. And one day, because Jesus is so gloriously exalted, so too will all his offspring be. So let's worship him at the foot of the cross right now. Starting by remembering his broken body and shed blood together. I'll invite the worship team up at this time.